This is the Stop the Bleed podcast, where host Pat and Kelly will foster powerful discussion around the importance of Stop the Bleed. From awareness and training to education and life-changing actions, you'll hear from survivors, first responders, neighbors, doctors, and people you pass on the street every day. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Stop the Bleed podcast. We've got a really great show today and a very special guest who brings a unique perspective about Stop the Bleed. Pat, I understand this is someone you've known for quite some time. That's right, Kelly. Uh, And hello, everyone. I am really thrilled to introduce our guest today, Mr. Mark Bianio, and I'm going to try and keep this short. Uh, Mark is a former general news columnist at New Jersey's top paper, the Star-Ledger. He is a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He is an author, having written a number of books, including The Last Newspaper Man and Gods of Wood and Stone. He is a Navy veteran, having served as a corpsman. He is a father of six. Mark's also a Jersey guy like me. He grew up here, graduated from Rutgers University, where he is now an adjunct professor of journalism. And for the past three years, he's worked as the public information officer for Newark, New Jersey's Department of Public Safety. He most recently has been traveling back and forth between the United States and Ukraine since the Russian invasion of about a year ago. I'm so excited that Mark has been able to take time from his schedule to visit with us on the podcast. So without any further ado, let me introduce my friend, author, journalist, father, professor, veteran, volunteer, Mr. Mark Dianio. Mark? Thank you, Pat, uh, for having me on. And Kelly, uh, thank you also. Yes, thank you. We're really excited to talk to you today, Mark. We always ask our guests, you know, where does the podcast find you? So tell us, where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from uh, Mountain Lakes, New Jersey, uh, not too far from where Pat lives. Ah, okay. Pretty close. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's dive right in and start with your time in Ukraine. Can you share with us what you've been doing since the war started? Well, when I first went over, um, it was to the uh, Polish uh, border to help with the uh, the massive exodus. And I landed in uh, Warsaw on March 3rd, about a week after the war started, and uh, ended up near the border and working for Caritas, loading trucks, unloading trucks of humanitarian aid, sending stuff uh, to the border where the Ukrainians were coming out, and then uh, transporting some of those families um, deeper into Poland uh, to uh, either Warsaw, Krakow, uh, uh, private homes, train stations. Uh, I took people as far as Berlin. And this was before they really had any mass transit organized. So we were just trying to get them out of there as fast as possible. There were just so many people coming. You know, Mark, I think you and I connected, I think after your first trip to talk about the wide variety of needs over there. But uh, we we wound up talking about stop the bleed stuff, and I wonder if you could share with our audience what you were seeing over there and how what we call the stop the bleed campaign over here connects up with that. Well, one of the things, Pat, is that um, you know because the invasion of the, because of the onslaught, you know Ukraine had to get uh, people out there fighting, and they didn't really have time to do the proper field medicine training. And uh, there's an urgent need for uh, stop the bleed type kits 
tourniquets and um, and the training that goes with them. Uh, I hooked up with a bunch of uh, army, former army and uh, combat medics that are over there trying to uh, create training, uh, a pyramid of training so that the, the men that are in the field get the proper training on the tourniquet use. And when I received a, 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 a box or two of the Stop the Bleed kits, those were used in training. And, and so um, you've been over there now, uh, how many trips, Mark? I've made five trips. I've gotten into Ukraine uh, every time. The first two times just basically stuck a toe in and then uh, spent the whole summer um, there and just came back from another uh, three-week trip in the winter. You know, I remember when we were first talking about this and uh, I was trying to explain to you what Stop the Bleed was and you basically told me to pause and explain that you were a former Navy corpsman and uh, that uh, your work in Newark uh, with the Office of Public Safety had already grounded you in what Stop the Bleed was. And I was thinking at the time, there's so many people that I run into and I start to explain what Stop the Bleed is and they already know about it, maybe by name or maybe by what its purpose is because they have some type of uh, connection uh, to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, as you, when you think about the, the campaign, uh, you had talked to me about uh, the city of Newark and sort of the need there. Right. What, what's your perspective from a urban uh, environment in terms of how we can uh, best engage uh, the citizenry to learn about this? Well, unfortunately, in our country today, uh, every single one of us has uh, a chance to become a first responder. I, I think that uh, a good campaign for Stop the Bleed would be to work through public safety offices in Philadelphia and Chicago and uh, other philanthropies and, and try to get multiple kits into every school, into uh, places where uh, in neighborhoods and bodegas, you know, you just never know uh, when you're going to need them, obviously. Do you think that there's awareness of this? Uh, I, I know you could speak for Newark, perhaps other places, so that it's more uh, a challenge of converting that awareness into action or to make people even first aware that this kind of training is potentially available, something that they should take. There is equipment and all that goes along with it. Well, I think that awareness is 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 really the first step, Pat, uh, like in anything else. You know, I don't think that there is a great life-saving awareness in some of our cities uh, of any type. And so uh, people sort of have learned to accept th- this violence and feel helpless. And I think it would be a great exercise in empowerment uh, for uh, people in our high homicide areas to know that they have the power to save lives uh, and to be involved in a life-saving capacity rather than just have to uh, be victimized. You think that lies through political action, through elected leaders, or you're mentioning uh, organization, community organizations, uh, police forces and whatnot. But what do you think the optimal path is to get that awareness to take place? I, I think that probably the optimal path is through fire department, uh, emergency services or EMTs. Like for instance, in Newark, we don't have, Newark does not have a, a city ambulance corps. They use UMDMJ. 
but most most big city fire departments, you know, the EMTs come out of that. Uh, and so I think I think from the public safety offices, from police uh, and fire departments, it's probably the best route, especially because you know police today are so big on community involvement and community policing. That's a great opportunity for Stop the Bleed to go and present and say, you know what, we want to give town hall meetings with you guys where we can demonstrate these kits, give them away, show people how they're used. And um, it fits right into the uh, complete philosophy of community policing, of police interfacing with the community, of police being uh uh, guardians of the community, uh, not the warriors of the community. And that's a, a cliche used by many police now. We want to be the guardians, not the warriors. You know, I know Pat wants to dive more into Stop the Bleed Coalition and the connection with Ukraine. But as I'm sitting here listening to, to Mark, to you and Pat talk, I'm having a hard time finding, I just wanted to go back a little bit and understand. So you've spent all this time over in Ukraine where did that actually start? What prompted you to go actually go over to Ukraine? And were you doing that as a volunteer? What prompted me to go over to Ukraine was anger. I was completely disgusted with our lack of response to this threat when Putin was gathering his forces. And, you know, as a former veteran, uh, many, and by the way, there's many, many, many of us over there, British and American veterans. They're all over the place. But as a former veteran, you know, a Cold War veteran, you know, to me, this was the line in the sand that you don't cross. You don't invade a westernized country, uh, a free European country. This was what everything was for. NATO, all the weapons defense uh, systems that we've sold all over the world. And for us to absolutely do nothing to discourage this guy instead of except put up sanctions that we're going to take months if not years to take hold i just felt like you know those of us that believe that this is the country that people rely on to protect their freedom i just believed it was time to just get up and go and i i was there on march 3rd uh, the invasion started on the 24th i i filled out an application for the territorial defense force immediately i was rejected because of my age because i'm 66 and um, I got on the next plane I could to Warsaw to help with the humanitarian effort. That's probably more than you want to know, but that's the truth. It just helps me wrap my head around, how did you get over there? Like you said, there are hundreds or thousands of volunteers and, and veterans over there. So I just think it's something I just wanted to touch on. I didn't go over with anybody. I didn't, um, I, I had no plan. I, all, all I knew was that I, I read a New York Times article about um, Lublin, uh, Poland, which is the furthest Eastern city uh, near, you know, direct line out of Kiev, was just overwhelmed and inundated with these refugees. They were coming by the thousands in, by the hour. And so I, I landed in Warsaw, I rented a car, I drove to Lublin. And uh, the very first night uh, that I was there, I met a bunch of the refugees and I also helped unload uh, a double decker, a double bus of um, handicapped people that had left a, a residential center in Kiev, and now we're going to uh, end up in um, in, um, in in the Netherlands somewhere. 
There were 40 people in wheelchairs and four volunteers to get them out, out of the bus, fed, back in the bus the next morning, and they're going to make three stops. I also met a bunch of women, and I realized these women were leaving their, their homes with everything they could carry with, you know, multiple children. And at that point in time, had no idea if their husbands, homes, or country would be there to return to. And so my disillusionment with the American process here grew as I was over there. I really began to think that we did not understand what was happening. Uh, and this was a humanitarian crisis of enormous proportions. Four million people left the country. Uh, just as an example, Kelly, the population of Warsaw grew 20% in the second weekend of the war. It went from 2 million to 2.4 million people in a weekend. And the Polish people, to me, deserve the Nobel Peace Prize for the services they gave and the way they opened their arms up to these people and all the volunteers from all over Europe that rushed in to, to help. Um, it was really a, an astounding thing to see. You know, Mark, I know that going over there without a plan uh, is what happened, as you just uh, shared with the audience. But I also know that you went over there possessing a, uh, a, wi a, a wide variety of skills and uh, that you've done some reporting, uh, mm -hmm. obviously one of your deep skills uh, along the way. Listening to you talk about this, one, one thing that occurs to me, and I'm really glad that Kelly asked that uh, question of what, what prompted you. Your other broad skill, I think, comes uh, certainly partly from your military experience, in, in, just in terms of being able to assess the situation and act. Right. I want to tie it to what, what we're doing with the Stop the Bleed campaign. Uh, we're not training people to do what you did and cross an ocean and uh, you know do all the great work that you did, but we are trying to train people to be prepared for something bad that can happen. And much as I'm sure your efforts over there were very effective because you had deep training. I mean, even the things that you're talking about, uh, the, the bus and the people in the wheelchairs and whatnot, one has to come at that to be effective, to have some baseline understanding of logistics and thinking two steps ahead, not just one step ahead. And for some people, that's very natural. But I think for most of us, uh, practicing that stuff or being thoughtful about what I would do uh, lends itself to better outcomes. And, uh, and so you're a citizen that has taken extreme action in, in terms of going over and doing all that you, you did. But we're really talking about uh, members of the public uh, uh, spending some time learning how to do something that maybe they will never use again uh, in, in their lives, uh, but that they will be prepared to act and do something effective if and when the time comes. Well, I think it comes down to uh, training and awareness, well, awareness first and training second. And certainly, you know, the Stop the Bleed kits, uh, and again, because of the culture that we live in, they should be everywhere that you have the, um, you know, the, the heart pads, the uh, defibrillators. The, uh, yeah, the AED devices, yeah. yeah there should really be, uh, you know, a, a tourniquet kit and a, and a hemostatic Stop the Bleed kit you know, near every fire alarm in, 
in a school and and near any other kind of emergency part of the first aid kit in the YMCA. This is just just unfortunately this is the world we live in in our country. You know, there's also car accidents and and um, you know uh, just accidents in general that you you would find these skills necessary and one of the parts of those skills that is so important is when you are trained you have a calming effect on what's going on and i think that that's really important when you are equipped with something that gives you confidence that you can fix whatever's wrong it gives you confidence to calm the people down around you get them in action and then, um, and then take care of the immediate situation. One of the things we learned in core school that always stuck with me is when you come upon a situation and everybody feels helpless, they're looking for somebody to tell them what to do. You go call 911, you go get a towel, you go see if you can reach the kids' parents, you know, uh, and, and you make, you order people to do things and they gladly do them because they're, they feel otherwise helpless. Well, you know, you brought up car accidents uh, and, uh, and it's a great point. In fact, what we know is that the people who are bleeding from gunshot wounds, uh, mass casualty incidents, you know, we just had another one uh, at Michigan State uh, earlier this week. Those make the news. And I think people become very aware of that kind of thing that can happen. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of traumatic bleeding that occurs in this country uh, are not from gunshot wounds, although that is certainly something to worry about, but it is car accidents. Uh, it is a variety of uh, unique everyday accidents or occurrences that uh, happen across the country. And we're going to be uh, having somebody on the, on the podcast uh, a little later on this spring who saved the life of a uh, college student, <clears throat> hockey player, who had his neck uh, cut, his carotid artery cut by a sharp blade uh, while falling with another hockey player during a game. And um, there are ski accidents where that sharp edge of a ski uh, has cut uh, the femoral artery of somebody who's skiing and, and just a whole host of other things. And part of what we try to do with the king. But here's the thing, Pat. Uh, and I, I think this is in terms of as you're trying to spread the word about these things, about about being prepared in, in car accidents, in industrial accidents, in other in school accidents, people basically count on first aid responders and they count on the, the industry, the, the workplace or the school, you know, in their minds, they count on those places being prepared. Right. The reason that the the random violence is a good way for you to to sort of bring, bring awareness about the bleeding is because it's so random. It happens in so many places that we don't expect it to. While statistically, sure, there's a lot more uh, uh, traumatic bleeding incidents and car crashes and industrial accidents. But people don't see that as an urgent problem as much as they would say, gee, if I go to the movies and some lunatic is there, you know, we need to be prepared for these things. You know, I want to be prepared for the day that I take a bullet in the knee. Um, 
You know, I don't know if you know this, but there was a girl in the Michigan State uh, building that was also uh, a student at uh, Parkland or someplace like that. So, you know, it, it, it almost gets to a point where, you know, we're, we're almost going to always, we're all going to eventually know somebody that's been involved in, in the periphery or a victim of a mass shooting. Yeah. And, and so, and, and, uh, and so I think that that is the way to sort of get the, the program into the hands of the regular person, because the regular person says, well, if the guy across the street cuts his, cuts his hand on a knife slicing bread, you know, 911 will be there. You know, they'll call the ambulance. They'll get there. I don't, it's not something that I need to really be prepared for. And I think that there's an, an opportunity in the, 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 these tragedies for uh, the Stop the Bleed the campaign between the, the random gunshot, uh, gun violence, and, and the urban gun violence. There, there's a way for the campaign to tell, to sort of bring a message to everybody that we need to just be prepared. It's sad, but it's the truth. Yeah, I think that sounds, uh, it, it sounds right, Mark. Uh, and I think uh, listening to you talk about it, I'm cognizant that as somebody who's been a journalist for decades, uh, you understand how to uh, communicate to the public with uh, information that obviously is correct and relevant, but is also going to uh, engage them to want to uh, read the column, uh, listen to the news, because you can have the greatest uh, story ever written, but if nobody reads it, then you're the only person that knows about it. Right, right. Well, it's very true. And it's very true of this kind of training. You know, it, it, the more you bring it into the public and the more people are aware of it, the more people are going to be involved and engaged. You, you know, Pat, you walk a, a fine line, I think, between how do we how do we promote this without terrorizing people, without capitalizing on these tragedies, uh, without without feeling that we're doing something undignified? Um, how do we keep it uh, in, 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 in the realm of, you know, you just is just as something that you should know how to do. It's just something you should know. That's one of the campaigns, Mark, that's one of the campaign's uh, biggest challenges, I would say, because uh, uh, it's axiomatic that for the kits to be widely available publicly, that owners or those who manage uh, public or quasi-public spaces, everything from office buildings to retail stores, malls, stadiums, uh, places where lots of people gather at schools and whatnot. Um, particularly with those uh, uh, buildings or public spaces that are commercially oriented. Right. And, uh, and I, I won't name the names, but uh, we've uh, had deep discussions with uh, Major League Baseball franchises and, and uh, NFL football franchises where they want to be properly equipped in case something bad happens at the stadium. On the other hand, they don't want to scare their fan base to make them think that, oh my God, are they equipping the stadium because they think this is going to happen? And that's a, that's a tricky area to navigate. It is. Now I will say more, more recently, I would say there's been a shift in thinking of worrying about that less and worrying more about 
it is our responsibility. We have a responsibility to be prepared because the world that we live in is the world that we live in and bad things can happen. And we don't want to not be ready for it if, if something bad happens. I mean, when you talk about this, I also, I just think that I hope that the future is the same when you're in a public space, you see the fire evacuation route. We have these emergency plans in place because we know emergencies happen. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. And, and I, it kind of speaks to uh, this idea that this happens. You know, it, it's not the way we want to live. We don't want to live scared. We don't want to live feeling that, you know, your child's going to go to the movies and get shot. But unfortunately, uh, and, you know, even though the percentages are very small and you can you can do the analytics on it and not live to feel feel fear. It's the one time that happens that if you're not prepared for, you have loss of life. And I want to I want to tell you guys something about Ukraine that that I think kind of lends itself to this. Some of the combat medics that I were I was working with over there were telling me that the Ukrainian uh, killed in action numbers were staggering because the you know percentage wise in terms of injury to death because they don't they didn't have basic tourniquet skills and we all know you know the Russians are going into battle half of them don't even have guns let alone first aid kits you know this idea of bleeding out you know that that in in a in a in a violent episode. Not everybody's getting shot in the heart, you know, or shot in the head and dying immediately. You know, people are bleeding out, and that is completely avoidable. That that is completely avoidable. So I think that that is something that is really, um, really important to uh, to get across to people. That it, it's not so much a scare tactic, but you are saving a life that uh, 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 or a death. You're you're preventing a death, I guess, that is completely avoidable. Yeah, well, you're right. And, you know, Mark, what, what you just described was the impetus for the uh, U.S. military to change its policy on how uh, combat wounds were to be addressed. Uh, I think probably when you were in, when I was in the Army, uh, if somebody was wounded on the battlefield, you called uh, the, the equivalent of 911. You called for the medic. And that, and that, and that was your, what you were supposed to do. Uh, we were not trained on how to use tourniquets. We, the, the thinking back then was that tourniquets may cause more problems than they solve. But um, you know, the, the study that the Army did back in 2003, 2004, uh, showed that 80% of uh, soldiers were dying on the battlefield from blood loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they implemented uh, the, a program that we now call Stop the Bleed here in the United States to train to train our uh, domestic population uh, resulted in a dramatic law, uh, reduction loss of life from uh, blood loss. And then, you know, this, from, from what you've said, this hasn't happened yet in Ukraine. I mean, it's an opportunity to really improve a not good situation, make it less not good. You know, as you know, Pat, I, I've, I've been posting stuff from Ukraine and uh, it, it's appeared in New Jersey Spotlight News and then in other other, I put stuff on Facebook and I chose not to uh, use pictures of battle wounds uh, just be for, for the reasons of uh, exploitation and basically good taste, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't want to upset people. They, they can use their imaginations. But the, 
the artillery wounds of this war are reminiscent of, um, you know, uh, World War One, uh, where uh, the artillery and the trench warfare um, just led to the type of injuries that were never ever seen before in the world. And so this war is similar to that. And and so the guys that are in in involved very close on the front lines are suffering from these horrible shrapnel wounds that are not necessarily deadly, uh, except for the blood loss. You're gonna lose your leg, you know, or your arm, uh, but that's been severed. But, you know, to bleed out um, is, is, is maybe avoidable. Well, you know, Mark, before we started recording uh, the interview, uh, we talked a little bit offline and you were mentioning the need for uh, tourniquets you know, right now, uh, what the, the need for the tourniquets is very urgent. I, I over the, over Christmas time, I spent a number of days in this place that I work over there, which is a secret location, packing first aid kits. And we had the rubber gloves, we had the tape, we had the hemostatic, uh, we had the hemostatic uh, uh, wound uh, packages, we had burned, burned stuff, the shortage was in tourniquets. And we had to stop completing packages because of the need for uh, for the tourniquets. So I think that if you guys can um, reinstitute or kickstart that Ukrainian donation and uh, get those shipped out through uh, the Ukrainian American uh, Cultural Center of New Jersey, which has done an incredible job of getting getting uh, equipment, medical equipment over there. And right now, Pat, um, their agenda is totally military. They're not sending any more um, uh, civilian aid, clothing, food. They're just trying to supply the military. I just was wondering, Mark, where can our where can our audience learn more about you and the work that you're doing in Ukraine? I was writing uh, pretty consistently over the summer. I didn't do as much um, when I was there this time. My, my articles have appeared on NJ Spotlight News. And if you Google my name, Ukraine and NJ Spotlight News, uh, which is a, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, it's part of the uh, public broadcasting uh, network. You know, the stories will come up and they'll see uh, what, what is uh, going on over there. I also had a GoFundMe page, uh, which I'm now putting to rest until the next time I go back. Um, uh, but I, I think that, uh, you know, I raised a lot of money and I, I distributed a lot of money. Uh, I'm still supporting these medics day to day, uh, $200 at a time because they have no money. You know, they, they're all over there on their own dime. They've whipped through their own savings. Um, so, you know, 200 bucks goes a long way over there. They can keep a guy in housing and uh, food for a month. Uh, so. Uh, right now, um, I'm making my plans to go back in May after my semester ends. And what I'd really like to do, uh, what I'm going to do this time is work directly with those medics. So I would like to have uh, some kind of setup where uh, we are getting uh, stuff delivered into the place, the warehouse where I work, that I can bring to them to bring to the field. Um, we... Uh, we'll travel uh, over the summer, if all goes well, to uh, areas closer to the front 
so that the people closer to the front can get the stuff delivered to the front. Nobody's on, nobody in this volunteer, you know, medic was just, American medic was just killed over there. Um, and that's a Russian tactic uh, of uh, hitting a place you just hit, knowing that the first responders will be there so you can kill them too. It's part of the Russian bar barbarism uh, that we know. We've known for a hundred years, <laughs> Soviet style warfare. Um, so that's what uh, I'm up to. And um, people could read the articles and um, they could always reach out to me at my email, which um, I can give you guys if you wanna post. Yeah, sure, we'd be delighted to do that, uh, Mark. I wanna wrap up our conversation with uh, something to do with all of our guests, a couple of hot seat questions. We call them hot seat questions. Okay. Um, so uh, first question is, uh, name someone famous that you would like to see stop the lead trade? Uh, I'm not in the best position to, to talk about, you know, who speaks best to, you know, the, the community most at risk of gunshot wounds in our country. But the, whoever speaks best to them would be a great candidate to, uh, to uh, help with this campaign. No, actually there's a guy named Meek Mill that I think is uh, uh, one of these um, rap rapper. He has a uh, he has a group uh, that works on um, on bail reform. Maybe that's a way in. All right, we'll we'll note it. Um, I'll give you the next question, Mark. In one word, what does stop the bleed mean to you? Life. That is an excellent word. We have had a wide variety of words, and um, that's a great one. All right, so uh, last uh, hot seat question. Name an oddball way or an injury that someone might experience life-threatening bleeding. Well, back when I used to do my yard work and I was using electric head clippers, I, I used to think, you know, I'm really relying on this trigger to stop these things from moving and when I'm moving it around. And I always envisioned it falling onto my forearm and, you know, slicing open four or five veins. So, yeah, I think that would be an oddball way. Mark, let me, uh, let me thank you. I want to thank you for a few, few things. I want to thank you for your support of the campaign, uh, for the work that you have done and will continue to do in Ukraine, and really for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us today. Well, I appreciate it. I'm a fan, Pat, and uh, what you're trying to do uh, will help in any way I can. And um, please let me know uh, what I can do to help and, and we'll stay involved, okay? Sounds terrific. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Gosh, Pat, Mark is someone that I think anyone could probably talk to all day long. <laughs> but um, in an effort of wrapping up our podcast, uh, let's just dive right into our spotlight. Who are we highlighting today? Well, today we're not highlighting a who, we're highlighting a what. Uh, we're going to highlight Stop the Bleed Day. So we're roughly three months from Stop the Bleed Day, which is on May 25th, 2023. And the launch of Stop the Bleed Day will happen in about a month. There are a number of programs that are run uh, as part of the whole effort that uh, capstone on Stop the Bleed Day. 
uh, we have a scholarship program, a, a training kit grant program. Uh, this year, we actually are going to be introducing a what I think is a really exciting uh, grant program with something called a Stop the Bleed Response Station. Uh, we're going to hear about that in a, in a, in a future episode, uh, Kelly. We're going to have a chance to interview uh, some of the people that are involved with that. But for the audience, uh, this is uh, a grant that is uh, likely worth up to $100,000 of uh, public safety infrastructure, including Stop the Bleed kits. So it's uh, the spotlight today is really a shout out that Stop the Bleed Day is coming. And uh, if anybody is interested to find out more about it, uh, they can go to stopthebleedproject.org. Uh, that'll have basic information about uh, some of the various programs that I just mentioned, but everything really kicks off uh, in about a month. Great, it's a great reminder for folks to think about, is it time to get refreshed on your training? Or if you haven't been trained, uh, start thinking about it now because Stop the Bleed Day is coming up. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Please keep listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you have an episode idea to share with us, leave us a comment or send us a message on Facebook. And last, please take a minute to share this podcast with someone you know, because together we can save more lives. To learn more about the Stop the Bleed campaign, Stop the Bleed grants and scholarships, and how you or your organization can get involved, visit StopTheBleedProject.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Stop the Bleed for campaign updates.